This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Episode 7, DKA. It's not about the fluids. Welcome to EM Pulse. Thank you all so much for subscribing and for following us. Yeah, and Julia, I don't know if you know this, but we are now being listened to in all 50 states, plus two territories, and in 64 countries around the globe. That's amazing. And Sarah, this is an EM Pulse podcast first, because we are publishing this podcast at the exact same time the New England Journal of Medicine is publishing Nate and Nicole's groundbreaking paper. The paper we discussed today is called A Clinical Trial of Fluid Infusion Rates for Pediatric diabetic ketoacidosis, and we are going to be discussing it with a husband-wife research team, Nicole Glazer and Nate Cooperman. And Julia, this is so great because as an adult ED provider, one of the mainstays of treatment is fluids, fluids, fluids. But when I'm in the PDD, I'm never really sure how much fluid I can give these kids. Am I going to hurt them by giving too much? So I'm so excited to hear what this paper shows. And I also love this episode because we talk with a kid. We talk to a child herself and to her mom. She explains to us what it's like in her own words to have diabetes, to have elevated blood sugars, what it feels like to be high, as she calls it. Yeah, and I love hearing her talk about how this illness affects her life. She is adorable. Totally is. (laughs) And even though she has diabetes, you can hear that normal nine-year-old competition with her siblings, what scares her about diabetes, and what it's like to be in the ED as a kid. Then we also hear from her mom, who struggles, understandably, with balancing having a kid with diabetes, other kids, knowing when to go to the ER, and they have some great coping mechanisms to normalize it, calling DKA high and her insulin pump and the Dexcom they refer to as her sticker. And they really work together. They're a fabulous team. And, you know, the doctors are there too. (laughs) They sure are. As you know, we see a lot of patients with diabetes and DKA in the emergency department. So Julia, as a pediatric emergency physician, can you tell us a little bit more about DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis? Yeah, sure. So if you've never heard of DKA in your life, then first we probably need to define diabetes. Diabetes is when your pancreas is not producing enough insulin. Sometimes this happens in kids early in life and probably genetic, environmental components. And sometimes it happens later on in life. And that's what we traditionally call diabetes type 2 or adult onset diabetes. Insulin normally plays an absolutely key role in helping your sugar or glucose enter into your cells. If it's not there, your body can't produce an energy in the same efficient way. DKA is a complication of diabetes that occurs when your body produces high level of blood acids called ketones. Without enough insulin, your body begins to break down fat as a fuel, and this produces that buildup of ketones or acid in the bloodstream. And that eventually is leading to DKA if it's untreated. And just as a reminder for the physicians and other providers out there, diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA, represents a profound insulin deficient state characterized by hyperglycemia, so that's over 200 milligrams per deciliter, and acidosis with a serum pH less than 7.3, bicarb less than 15 milliequivalents per liter along with evidence of an accumulation of keto acids in the blood. And we measure this by serum or urine ketones and an increased anion gap. Nine-year-old Whitley and her mom, Amanda, live in our community and have been managing diabetes since Amanda was five years old. Here's her story.
So how did you know that she was sick? Tell me about the diagnosis of diabetes. How did this all start? Well, it, it started uh, just after she turned five, a couple days after she turned five. And my sister's kids were spending the night and Whitley was really, really thirsty. And we'd gone through a couple UTIs before. So I thought, let's go get some cranberry juice and gave it to her by the gallon, practically. And she was having to get up and use the bathroom several times a night, you know, all throughout the day. And it was about two days afterwards, my sister was over and she said, you know, this seems really familiar to what her sister had gone through before she was diagnosed. She said, it just, it just seems like diabetes. And it clicked. My aunt was diabetic. Um, Whitley's cousin was diagnosed when she was two. And I don't know why I hadn't thought it, you know, it doesn't happen to you, right? My kids are healthy. My kids are fine. And I went, oh, man, it seems just like it. So I called everybody that I knew that had diabetes, and they said, no, no, you're, you're overthinking it. Don't worry about it. And um, I took her to urgent care, and I said, uh, you know, I think something's up. I think it's diabetes. They said, okay, wait here. And I said, well, she's got to use the bathroom. Can we go ahead and do a urine sample? And they didn't believe it either because she wasn't throwing up. And, you know, she just didn't seem diabetic other than having to use the bathroom a lot. And they finally got us back and they said, oh, yeah, actually, uh, no ketones. Her blood sugar was elevated, but it wasn't sky high. And they sent us on to Stanford where she was diagnosed. And we caught it early enough that she didn't have to stay overnight, which was great. So they gave us, you know, long acting insulin, said, come back tomorrow for your eight hour, you know, all day a thon of learning about diabetes. And that was the start of it. You've been dealing with diabetes for as long as you can remember then? Yeah. Wow. So you guys have gone through the diabetes ketoacidosis DKA process before? So we've gone through DKA a few times. That I would say it's really prevalent when we have something like the flu, mm -hmm. that it's hard to bring her numbers down because there's something obstructing whatever efforts we're making. Uh, so earlier this year, Whitley did have the flu. And she did have ketones. Uh, and she was very, very sick and throwing up. And we had to go to the emergency room um, where they gave her an IV. And it, it took a long time to get her numbers down to something manageable, something that we could keep up with. And I think it was about an eight-hour process. It was really a fight to get the numbers down. Quitly, when you're really high, what does it feel like to you? Um, it feels kind of crazy. It feels like... I kind of can't walk, and I can't sleep very well. You feel dizzy, you say? Right. Yeah. Like, when my numbers are high, I just try and drink some water from my water bottle, and um, I just... But your stomach doesn't asleep. feel right when yeah. you're high, right? Being high doesn't really feel good to my blood sugar. Yeah. What does your head feel like when you're being high? Um, it feels dizzy, like, when I, when I was trying to sleep, I drink some water, and then my head kind of hurt, and I, when I tried to lay on my pillow, um, my head felt like I was laying on a book. Mm. So at the birthday party, when she was vomiting and having a hard time hitting the pinata, well, she couldn't even get up to hit the pinata. Oh. So what happened after that? Like, how did you break out of the birthday party? 
I feel like the worst for it because I wasn't, I just didn't consider that that was it. I just, I didn't know what was wrong. So we stuck it out through the birthday party. And I think even a few hours at home, just trying to give her some water and figure out what it could be. And, and I think the pump was, I think we were about a week into using it. So it just hadn't occurred to me that an inset could fail so quickly. And they don't even fail that often for us now. It's just a matter of needing to change it. You know, maybe it's gone a day too long. So I did everything that the workbook said to do. Check this, check this. And it wasn't obviously bleeding out insulin, but we did a new inset, which is kind of a last resort until we got lidocaine because it's, it's not a pleasant thing for them. We did that and then her numbers started coming down. And that was, you know, life lesson number one with diabetes and an insulin pump was change the inset first, first thing. But it took a while to get there. It took a while to realize it. Yeah, that sounds not fun. So you didn't have to go to the hospital that birthday time. It was just setting out, changing out the inset. Yeah, not that time. There have been other days, like recently when she had the flu, where we can try everything at home from changing the inset to the cartridge to a completely new bottle of insulin And it wasn't obvious right away that she had the flu because once that starts, her diabetes kicks up also. So it's not like you're seeing obvious flu symptoms versus obvious uh, DKA symptoms. Uh, So you try everything at home first and then realize that whatever you're doing isn't working. You need to go now. What's it like being in the emergency department with diabetes? Mm, Not really good. Not really good. When you go to the emergency room, you're not really you're not planning for it. We actually have a bag now because we've had to go a few times that has an extra phone charger and it has an extra tablet charger and it has some, you know, little snacks and things. When you go, do they have to put IVs in you? They had to put it in there, but they couldn't put it in there. So they had to put it on my hand and it really hurt. So I kind of squealed like a pig. (laughs) Whitley, do your friends ever ask about your sticker? Um, yes. They ask a lot of questions about it. Yeah? What do you tell them? Well, I don't usually tell them about it. Well, you can ask my mom about it. I'm not the professional here. (laughs) (laughs) I think Wit's pretty good about telling people. She says, well, I have diabetes, and my pancreas doesn't work, and so I need insulin. I can see in my future, I'm still going to be a diabetic. It is going to be worse, sir. I think it'll be better. I think doctors are getting better about this stuff. I think it'll be better. You know, you're the first one in the family who's going to live a full life with diabetes. And grow taller than Greg. (laughs) (laughs) Whitley, is there any good parts about having diabetes? Stayed alive, I guess. (laughs) That is true. Maybe with my mommy. Well, maybe Audrey. Whitley, I am so glad that because of investigators like Nate Cooperman and Nicole Glazer, you are going to live a long and happy life with your diabetes. Today, we have the absolute pleasure of speaking with a husband and wife team who've been working together for many years on our topic. Uh, We are here with Nate Cooperman, who's a professor and chair of emergency medicine at UC Davis. He's a pediatric emergency physician. And his wife, Nicole Glazer, who's a professor of pediatrics at UC Davis, and she is a pediatric endocrinologist. So thank you guys so much for coming today. Our pleasure. Great to be here. 
Yeah, it's such an awesome opportunity to see a team like you guys working and tackling these topics that, you know, stretch from the emergency department all the way into the hospital and then out into the clinic. So I think it's super exciting to hear your story. So along those lines, how did you guys first start investigating DKA? I think like a lot of uh, interesting research questions in medicine, we started with cases that puzzled us or concerned us. And um, in this case, we actually had a a couple of different cases come up where children developed brain injuries during DKA. For for me, um, the first case was when I was a resident and doing my training in pediatrics, and we had a two-year-old um, come into the pediatric uh, critical care unit with DKA, and he um, very tragically developed a brain injury as a result and actually died from that. And that was the first time that I realized that you can die from DKA. It was tragic and also very puzzling because we had used the same standard treatment for him that we used for anybody else and everyone else seemed to have good outcomes. And, you know, then this was the one bad outcome. And and so that, of course, prompted a lot of reading of the literature, which was really unsatisfying and didn't really provide a good answer for why that had happened. And then, um, few years later, another case came up, which I'll let Nate describe. First of all, when we talk about brain injury in DKA, most listeners think, oh, brain injury like trauma. But no, we when we refer to brain injury, it's what people used to refer to as cerebral edema. And you'll hear as we kind of tell our story why we talk about it as brain injury, because there is an injury to the brain that occurs before cerebral edema develops. And so when we talk about these neurologic phenomena in DKA, we refer to them as brain injury because that is what we feel is the primary insult and cerebral edema follows afterwards. The case that Nicole was referring to is when uh, she was a resident in Boston. And then we came to Sacramento. We've been here 20 some years. And there was um, a child, probably around four years of age, presented to our emergency department with forward evidence of a brain injury slash cerebral edema when they walked into the emergency department before anything had happened. No IVs, no nothing presented this way. And I was also caught a little breathless thinking that, wow, we were always taught in pediatrics that the cause of cerebral injury or edema is because we give too much IV fluid. And this child not only had no IVs in and received no IV fluid, at home, some people say, well, you could maybe drink yourself into cerebral edema. Of course, when you're in DKA, you're vomiting like crazy, and this child had not kept anything down. So between those two cases, and this case in Sacramento, of course, Nicole was also involved with as a peds endocrinologist, we put our heads together and we thought, hmm, something's not right here, and we need to investigate better what the cause is and the implications for treatment. And Nate, where did this dogma come from? Because I'm a general emergency physician, and I treat DKA in adults all the time. And the treatment, initial treatment is fluids, fluids, fluids. I routinely give these patients two, three, four liters of fluid. So where did it come from in kids that this is potentially harmful? So it's a really interesting story. And I'm not going to criticize any previous investigators, but it really was based on research that was conducted in shall we say an old-fashioned way, it wasn't a modern methods of doing research, but this is the type of research that led to these conclusions 30 to 40 years ago. So investigators would look at one group of children 
with DKA who developed cerebral injury slash edema. They got a lot of fluids. And then they, the investigators would look at another collection of children with DKA who didn't develop cerebral injury or edema, and they didn't get a lot of fluids. So conclusion, fluids cause cerebral edema. Big problem. These children who are getting a lot of fluids, what else is going on with them? Well, guess what? They're sicker, they're more dehydrated, they're more acidotic. But for some reason, the investigators concluded that it was fluids as opposed to any of these other factors that were associated with cerebral injury. And that led to a sort of a rule that I bet is uh, was true for Julia and Nicole and me, that we should never give more than four liters per meter squared per day of IV fluid because that was associated with cerebral edema. I call it edema because back then, that's how they were referring it to. And that's where the dogma started. And people just continue to follow that to this day. So it really, the, the first actual study we did based on that history, we thought, okay, let's look at how people do manage DKA. So we did a survey and we actually involved, there was residents at UC Davis who participated. And we did a survey of pediatric chief residents, emergency physicians, critical care physicians, and endocrinologists. And we presented them either one or two cases, I can't remember, of a child with DKA, and we asked them how they would manage the fluids, etc. And as you can imagine, these things, it was all over the place. So then that really sort of sealed it. We said, okay, we have to study this the right way. And it led to our first big study together, which was also published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, 17 years ago. Yeah, we're especially proud of that study, I think, because it was such a low-budget study. It was a 10-center study retrospective. And as Nicole said, the grant, which whatever it was, was this relatively small amount, basically paid for each one to fly into San Francisco. And we all holed up at the Fairmont Hotel on Union Square for a weekend. And we sat there and we let nobody leave until we figured out how we're going to abstract the data the same way. And actually it was 10 sites, nine in the United States and one in Australia because our like Peter Barnett uh, um, in uh, Melbourne uh, w- participated as well. And we figured out how we we're going to abstract the data, sent everyone off back home, and they abstracted charts from uh, about 7,000 episodes of DKA, of which 60, or 0.9%, which is the expected rate, had developed the serious cerebral injury slash edema. But what we looked at is, as opposed to those other studies that just didn't control for severity of illness or dehydration. In this study, we looked at lots of factors at the same time, their pH, their PCO2, their respiratory rate, their BUN, all these factors that are associated with severity of illness, as well as fluid received and insulin received and these therapeutic factors. And after controlling for severity, we found four factors were associated with DK-related cerebral we're going to call it edema because it was from back then. And interestingly, one was a modifiable factor, which I'll mention. And the other important finding is that fluid was not one of the four factors. So when we look back and think, why was it that published in New England Journal of Medicine? It's a retrospective chart review, but it was big. It was multi-center and it debunked of an important dogma. Fluids were not associated. And we found one modifiable factor that administering bicarbonate to children, even after controlling for acidosis and whatnot, 
was associated with these cerebral events. So after that, interestingly, we think that actually people stopped administering bicarbonate to children, but fluid didn't change. For some reason, they thought, oh, interesting finding, but I'm not going to change my practice. Yeah, I, I think people what... weren't convinced. You know, it was retrospective. So, you know, it's still not the gold standard, the randomized prospective study. And so the fluid administration really didn't change. People really wanted to see the the real the real deal, the the gold standard. That's super interesting that they let go of the bicarb, but not the fluids. All right. So we didn't change fluids with that first one. Um, and you guys were like, okay, we got to we got to really find out. How did you approach this? How, tell us about this uh, most recent study. Uh, certainly a lot of years went by in between the first one and, and this one, in part because we needed a lot more background data to really convince people that it was safe to do a randomized trial. It, you know, people were really entrenched in that idea that overly rapid fluid administration causes cerebral edema. And, and so, you know, we really had to have pretty substantive background data to say there's at least enough question here that it's it's reasonable to do the trial. So that took a lot of years and a lot of studies in the rat lab and, and things like that. And finally, we got to that stage. So if, if I could add, um, uh-huh. and I'll just kind of quickly summarize 15 years of research that went in between that first one and this one, because for us to feel comfortable to do this randomized trial, which most importantly compared rapid rehydration versus traditional slower rehydration, we had done a series, we probably had 10 publications in between in which we enrolled children into uh, fast and slower fluid arms. We looked, we did very sophisticated imaging. So what's called... um, Diffusion-weighted imaging, it's a Mm -hmm. special form of MR, uh, of magnetic resonance imaging, and um, uh, MR spectroscopy, because what we really wanted to know is what's going on in the brain during DKA. And everything that we did from the rat lab that Nicole really helped establish with collaborators on the undergraduate campus to the children that we were enrolling for many years, it all pointed to the same thing. It looked like the brains are dehydrated. The factors associated with these injuries are factors associated with severity of illness, and we felt you just need to rehydrate the brain. So that's what led to the the trial that Nicole just described. And an interesting uh, note I want to mention as we prepared for this trial, and this was trial was conducted in PCARN, which is a pediatric emergency care applied research network in which Nicole and I and many others have been involved with for many years. And this is a group of investigators who are willing to do bold things, but we needed probably 15 centers to participate. And we proposed this trial of rapid versus slow, and we got like two centers willing to do it because everybody was scared because everyone had this dog with this belief that the what they were doing is right, and if they diverged from that, it would put the child at risk. So we took initially what were a rapid and a slow arm, which were relatively widely spaced. And then we had to narrow it a little bit because we needed about 15 sites. So we narrowed it a little bit, got a few more sites, and narrowed it a little bit more, and we got 13 sites. We said, okay, now we can go. And on top of that, you have to get three groups of investigators on board, emergency physicians, intensive care physicians, and endocrinologists. That was a challenge. So it was both overcoming people's fear about the fluid and getting the three services on board. And ironically, 
the four arms which Nicole described in this factorial design, which is two fast arms, two slow arms, two arms that get rehydrated after the fluid bolus with half normal saline, and two arms that get rehydrated with normal saline. Although every center feels like they're doing it right, those four arms were being practiced by different sites in Picard in the country. So we weren't testing actually anything new. We were really just comparing protocols that are sort of in existence. Nicole, is that a fair yeah. statement? Yeah. Don't mm-hmm. you think? So besides just being a complicated multi-center trial, we had to overcome myth-busting to get trials done. This teaching was so pervasive that fluid causes cerebral edema that just busting through that to get this trial even set up was a real challenge. So what we did was a uh, two-by-two factorial design randomized trial. So we had four arms that used combinations of either normal saline or half-normal saline with either rapid fluid infusion or slow fluid infusion. And then we compared uh, neurological and neurocognitive outcomes in the children in the four arms. So uh, we looked at um, Glasgow Coma Scale scores during DKA treatment to assess for mental status changes. Um, we looked at clinical diagnoses of cerebral injury during DKA, although that rate, of course, is very small because the typical rate is about a little less than 1%. To get a little bit more kind of a granular look at um, mental status, we also had the kids do tests of memory during DKA. So they did digit span recall testing. They had to remember a series of numbers read to them, either forwards or, or backwards. And so we, we tested that also during DKA. And then we had the kids come back um, about three months after the DK episode to do more comprehensive tests of memory and IQ. You know, I bet you guys were uniquely positioned in a way that just about no other team could have done this because we in emergency medicine want to hear from another emergency medicine provider if you're going to change our dogma. And I'm sure that's true for endocrinology and Picky works with, you know, both of us. So it was really cool how you guys had that language between the two of you, those contacts. Yeah, absolutely. I think it would have been difficult otherwise, um, especially because there often is this kind of divide between endocrinologists and, and ER docs as far as, you know, what happens in DKA and the endocrinologist afterwards will kind of go, oh, well, in the ER they did this, you know. <laughs> so, um, and we in the ER say, well, endocrinologists well, endocr- don't take care of DKA. We take care of DKA. <laughs> yeah. They're home eating their cheese and drinking their wine. <laughs> So what did you guys find? You have these four arms. What were some of the major results? The bottom line, basically, is that we didn't really see differences in the forearms in the neurological or neurocognitive outcomes. We did have some subgroups, actually, where there were um, either trends towards some differences. Um, when we looked, for example, at sicker children, so lower pH Um, lower PCO2, higher glucose levels. Um, We did see some slight differences there, but interestingly, those differences tended to favor the faster fluid arms. But in the main study, we really didn't see any significant differences among the the groups. In the subgroups, those are subgroups of the most dehydrated children, top quartile dehydrated children, Mm. the most acidotic children. This is where we saw even more of a trend towards benefit towards faster fluid, although, again, statistical significance seen um, uncommonly. But even in the main analysis, the point estimate, that is, you know, which arms were favored, always pointed to the fast arm, although, again, didn't achieve statistical significance. 
but it's important because we weren't trying to show necessarily that faster is better. We just wanted to show that it's not about the fluids, that you can manage fluids in DKA like you'd manage fluids in any other condition. That's really the point uh, because based on our our own data and our review of the literature is that children were being under rehydrated for decades because they're really dehydrated with DKA. And really the goal was to show that you can give fast fluids. And as a sort of a sidelight, we found that the point estimates all favored the fast fluid rate. How fast is fast? So the the fast arms um, got a 20 cc per kilo initial bolus of um, normal saline um, and could be repeated if the clinicians felt that uh, it was necessary. But uh, according to the protocol, they got a 20 cc per kilo bolus. Um, and then the estimated um, fluid deficit half was replaced over the first 12 hours and then the rest over the next 24 hours. But since DKA mainly resolves within 12 hours, in actuality, what we were doing was basically replacing the fluid deficit over 24 hours. And in the slow arm, mm-hmm. the bolus was 10 cc's per kilo and the rehydration was even over 48 hours, which is the most typical uh, regimen. But it's interesting because you might think, well, that fast doesn't sound very fast, 20 cc's per kilo bolus. But people are so entrenched in these flow, slow fluids. There are some protocols out there that say no bolus. Again, these are children with DKA, acidotic, dehydrated, no bolus, and rehydration over some slow period of time. And maybe the more aggressive ones will say, oh, 10 cc's per kilo. So to be quite honest, we wanted to make the fast faster, but we couldn't get people to buy into it too scared. This is the the limits and reality of science. You need to get enough people on board. To 10 years it. from now, we'll see the next one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> were there any results that were surprising to you guys? Not so much for us, because over all the years, we've get, been getting sort of hints at this for a long time. Yeah. Um, but I think yeah. uh, other people will be pretty surprised by these results. And I'll, I'll add that. So, you know, we looked at two main outcomes. One, as Nicole mentioned, it was the GCS uh, decrease below 14. And we had done other studies about that, and that's a, a good indicator of events going on in the brain. We had correlated GCS to uh, MR imaging in one of those earlier studies I mentioned. But in terms of the big, bad cerebral edema, cerebral injury, ones that require either mannitol or hypertonic saline or intubation, there was 12 of those events in 1,400 patients. This was a trial of wow. 14. And that is exactly what you expected because based on our study in 2001, I mentioned it was 0.9%. Well, 12 out of 1,400 is basically 0.9%. So we saw the same number of events. Of those 12 events, eight of them happened in the slow arms and four of them in the fast arms. Still not statistically significant, but again, point estimates favoring the fast arms. So I think if you take it all in sum between the GCS drops favoring the fast arms, the big bad cerebral injury edema favoring the fast arms, and the sub-analyses all favoring the fast arms, again, with some small areas of statistical significance, I think in total people are going to be surprised, although I will say they shouldn't be because we showed that 17 years ago (laughs) in a retrospective case control study that fluid was not the main factor. 
Did you look at those 12 in any more detail? Is there any other lessons that we can learn if it's not fluids and we're not giving bicarb? Is there anything else we can learn from those 12? We haven't yet, but we will be. Yeah, we're planning to look at that later in a different analysis. That'll be interesting. If you were going to categorize those 12, they were more acidotic. They were more dehydrated, right? I think they were a sicker group of patients at baseline. Um, And again, that's you know, consistent with our hypothesis that what puts the child at risk is really their baseline state. And Nicole has done some really interesting stuff in the lab to kind of further uh, sort of speculate and work on that. But that's, I think if you were to categorize those 12, it's mainly that they were sick yeah. as opposed to the others who were, who were sick, but just not as sick. Okay. So this is a game-changing paper. I mean, from, you know, from our practice over the last however many years, this just completely flips it on end. How has this changed your practice? I treat the child with DKA now the way I treat any dehydrated patient. And I don't hold it to 10 cc's per kilo. I give them the fluid that they need because I know that fluid is not associated with cerebral events. So if you're dehydrated, you get fluid. And certainly if they're hemodynamically unstable, you really give them fluid. Yeah, so I, I mean, that pretty much summarizes it. I, I think the findings kind of put the ball sort of back in the court of the physician in a certain way that how much should you hydrate children? You know, it really depends on um, the clinical state, you know, paying attention to cardiovascular status and vital signs and looking at the response to therapy and intake and output. And, you know, it's really ba- kind of back to basics in a certain way. Yeah. Where do we go from here? Yeah, so so these findings, you know, are are great at telling us what it's not, um, but they don't give us a lot of information really as far as what it is. So, mm-hmm. you know, what does cause cerebral injuries then in in these kids? And so far, our data in the lab, and then some some clinical data too from doing MR studies and things like that of of children suggests that um, there are a couple factors that are important, most likely. That is lack of adequate perfusion to the brain. So, you know, hypoperfusion during untreated DKA, and then the reperfusion phenomenon when there's hypoperfusion and reperfusion, then the brain can develop injury during that. But also, it's seeming that the hyperinflammatory state during DKA is probably contributing as well. There are very high levels of various inflammatory mediators during DKA. And what we're finding is that the combination of hypoperfusion-reperfusion with that hyperinflammatory state might kind of act synergistically to cause the brain injuries. And that's what we're really interested in investigating. And we actually just recently put in a grant we hope will get funded to look at that. You guys are an amazing team. I, I sort of picture this being dinner conversation. Your youngest child probably has heard all about this and could tell us the same results, I imagine. <laughs> sure, she probably could, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's time to stop boring our children at the dinner table. <laughs> I think it's amazing that 20 years of answering these questions and you guys want to still keep researching and keep investigating together. So I think that's awesome. Anything else you guys think we should know? Any research, as you guys know, is hard. And you count on your research partner like nobody's business. And Nicole is my best research partner because you have to have fundamental trust in your partner, which is one of the essences, I think, in collaborative research. So that's kind of... Uh, and we've... And, and we still love each other, and we're, ha- and, we're, and we're happily married after 24 years. So, uh, yeah. Thank you guys both so much for coming on today. 
Pulse check. DKA, it's not about the fluids. You know, I grew up being told four liters per meter squared per day when you're treating DKA. But because of Nate and Nicole's research, we know that you can actually treat a DKA patient like you would any other dehydrated patient. If they need fluids, give them fluids. For years, we've been restricting fluids and giving them slowly. And now we know it's not about the fluids. And there's so much more to learn on this topic. So for a deeper dive into the science, including the 10 plus years of research that laid the foundation for this article, learn about mouse models, functional MRI, and so much more, listen to the full interview with Nate and Nicole. You'll find the link in our show notes. And as always, we want to hear from you. So how does this paper change your practice? Join the conversation on social media at Impulse Podcast. I'm really excited because we have another conference coming up. This one is going to be in Maui. It's Emergency Medicine Hot Topics 2018, and it's by the UC Davis Conference and Event Services. It's going to be November 6th through 10th, and I am going to be there along with several of my colleagues talking about hot topics in emergency medicine. And as always, thank you so much to our department, UC Davis Emergency Medicine, to OM Audio Productions, and to all of our listeners out there. <laughs>